There's a disconnect between their worship and their lives. Jesus came to express God's mind. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. I will suffer with you. I will suffer for you to make things right between us again. Good morning. Thank you for uh, joining in today. We are in a series on uh, during this Advent season. It's called Prophet, Priest, and King. And instead of the usual uh, stable and shepherds and Mary, Joseph, and angels, we are really wanting to zoom out to see more of the, the full picture of uh, this Jesus who became a baby born to rescue humanity. And so last week we said that the incarnation is not just the miraculous birth, but it's his life, it's his ministry, it's his death and resurrection. It is his eternal reign of his eternal kingdom. It's this fuller picture of his identity as prophet, priest, and king. So today is priest. And much like we did last week with the role and title of prophet, I want to take a brief look at the life of a priest in the Old Testament and then to see how in the words of Hebrews, Jesus is the true and better priest. And then we'll wrap up by looking at what it means for us to be the priesthood of all believers in our context. So let's start with the Old Testament. Aaron was the first priest. He was the brother of Moses. But a couple of generations later, the priests were chosen from the tribe of Levi. And the idea was that they would be set apart to lead the people of Israel in worship. They were to preach and teach the law and to interpret the law. They were to take care of and curate the space of the tabernacle in the temple they were to receive and butcher and burn the animal sacrifices that were to atone for the sins of the people, to purify the space and the people so that the presence and the power of God might dwell with them. So there were a lot of different elements to their job description, but the main role of the priest was to be a mediator to be an advocate, to be an intercessor, to be the bridge between God and his people, standing in the gap, making sacrifices to atone for the sin of the community. Most Bible reading plans fizzle out about Leviticus, um, but in the words of Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, the big question posed in the book of Leviticus is this, how can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to a holy God? How can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to a holy God? And really, that's the essence of what the whole Bible is about. 
But Leviticus comes at a key time in Israel's history. Moses having led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And they're in the wilderness. And they have just received the covenant on Mount Sinai, Moses has. But the people have already broken the covenant. It didn't take long. And so in Leviticus, God lays out this whole structure for his people to be his people, including rituals for worship and purity and daily life, but also the roles and responsibilities of the priest. And in the middle of the book of, are these instructions specifically about the Day of Atonement, a once-a-year sacrifice covering the sin of the people. And so this is what we find in Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. God allows the animal to be the substitute, a, a symbolic dying in place of the people of Israel. So the priest would take some of the blood from the animal and he would sprinkle it on the altar and around the temple. And so now the purified temple and the, the purified people become a clean space for God and his people to reconnect Blood is shed, a life is given, sins are covered. And the point was that this was the way that the Israelites would be made right, experiencing God's love and grace through these symbols. And one would think that by being forgiven, by experiencing grace, it would compel them to want to live holy lives. But the reality is that they didn't that they couldn't. Individually, collectively, the people of God could not live out a life of holiness and righteousness. And so Isaiah calls out the Israelites, saying that their continual sacrifices had become meaningless because they were simultaneously going through the motions of worship, and at the same time, they were distorting justice. This is from Isaiah 1. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. God says, seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. There's a disconnect between their worship and their lives going through the motions of the sacrifice, singing the songs, doing the deal, but completely ignoring the injustice all around them and the sin that was in them. Throughout the Bible, there are few, very few times where the priests actually fulfilled their roles. But then later in the book, Isaiah is talking about this coming priest 
who would not just offer a sacrifice of atonement, but would actually be the atoning sacrifice himself. Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Which takes us to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Jesus, the great high priest. Throughout the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 4 and then Chapters 7 through 10, the writer is describing Jesus as the true and better high priest. Here's a snapshot. Hebrews 7. He is the kind of priest we need because he is holy and blameless. He is unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other priests, he does does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. Chapter 8, Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Hebrews 9, Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins. He already did that. But to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. In chapter 10, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand. We could go on, but you get the picture that Jesus is the true and better high priest. He is the perfect atonement. He is the once and for all sacrifice. He is, has a priesthood that is eternal. Jesus is our mediator. 1 Timothy 2 says, there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our intercessor. Hebrews 7, therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Jesus is our advocate. 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Romans 8. Who then will condemn us? 
No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading, pleading for us. Friends, Jesus is our advocate. He is our bridge of reconciliation. Eugene Peterson writes, the priest stands in the middle between us and God, between God and us. The priest presents God to us. He tells us who God is, the way he acts, the truth that he reveals, and he invites us to receive this God, to believe in him, to obey and trust and worship him. And the priest stands, presents us to God. He presents our sin and guilt, our work and our thanksgiving, our failures and pretensions, our sickness and our ignorance. And he asks God to receive us, to forgive us, to guide us, to save us. Jesus in Jesus alone fulfills that perfectly. He is the great high priest. And so what does that mean for us exactly? Well, two things. I think it changes our inward condition and our outward expression. Our inward condition. For the early church, for the original readers of Hebrews, the metaphor of the altar and Jesus being the perfect sacrifice, it would have been completely relevant as that was what they knew on a daily basis. It's what they experienced every time they walked through Jerusalem and they, they saw people bringing an animal to the temple and they smelled the smoke of the burning animal on the altar and the aroma of the sacrifice and the, the, they saw the priest covered in blood. I mean, this was their, their reality. For us, it seems a bit barbaric and distant and ancient, but the big why still applies. That we, because of our sin, because of our guilt, because of our shame, have been estranged from God. And this God loves us and because of love went to extremes to reconcile us to himself through Jesus, through the cross. Jesus gave his life. The father gave his son to heal us, restore us, reconcile us. The religious landscape in the time of the Israelites was this, the sacrifices were made to gods who had to be appeased. They had to be placated. They had to be satisfied. From the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Romans to the Greeks, they all had gods that had to be satisfied, to be Placated. It was more like the protection racket employed by the mafia or the cartels so that life would go well because if you didn't placate, life would go poorly. It was about buying one's salvation. It was DIY religion. The uniqueness of Christianity is that God makes the first move toward reconciliation. God sent his son to save. 
When we were sinners, Christ died for us. His kindness leads us to repentance. His, we love because he first loved us. He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Very different from every other religion, from every other system. Scripture doesn't say anything about God's wrath being satisfied, as if Jesus came to try to change God's mind. Jesus came to express God's mind. And what, was, what has always been in God's mind is reconciling the world back to himself. Shirley Guthrie wrote, to be redeemed is not to be saved from an angry God seeking revenge. It is to be saved or redeemed from the sin that separates us from the God who loves us and will, on, and will only our good and wills only our good even when we live in self-destructive, sinful alienation from God. It is just when God comes to our side in our loneliness, alienation, and guilt that they are overcome. In the cross, God says to us, yes, it's true. You have hurt and offended me, but I still love you. Therefore, I will make your guilt and its consequences my own. I will suffer with you. I will suffer for you to make things right between us again. Even in the Old Testament, Sacrifice was not to appease or pacify a reluctant God. It was God's gift to his people given out of a loving desire to reconcile the gap that disobedience and sin had caused. And it pointed ahead toward a once and for all sacrifice that came through the ultimate gift of his son. So what is our response? What, what is our reaction Hebrews 4 says, come close. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did so without sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Come close. Hebrews 10 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. That's rich. Come close with a sincere heart, God says. It's about wholeness of the inner self, not just what we appear to be on the outside. It's with full assurance of faith that we approach 
God in full view, that we completely trust him in light of what happened on the cross. Being right, being made right inwardly goes hand in hand with having a complete assurance of faith, doesn't it? When we appear to be all spiritual and when we appear to have it all together on the outside and on the inside we're a train wreck, our faith is described as anything but full assurance. It's more like the California coastline during rainy season. But the word sincere is really this cool, it means authenticity. It means the real deal. And if we're honest, there is no way for us to maintain it. There's no way us, for us to achieve it. But the writer says we have hearts and minds and bodies that have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. We have guilt-free consciences. We know the essence of his cleansing. Just like the preparation for the priests when they made sacrifices, there's an outward sign of an inward cleansing. It's similar to baptism. And since we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, he says we can approach the presence of God and worship. Hebrews 13, though through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice, not of animals, Thank heavens for that. But a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased, which leads to the outward expression. The priesthood of all believers Revelation 1.5 says, All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. 1 Peter 2.9, You are royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So again, this job description of the priest, it is a worshiping servant and it is an intercessor and it's an advocate and it's a reconciler. And that job description has been laid upon us to be a worshiping servant, to be a community of worshiping servants. Romans 12, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. Take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. To each believer, grace is given for service to God. Romans 12 says, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. 
1 Corinthians 12, now to each one a manifestation of the Spirit's been given for the common good. Ephesians 4, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. 1 Peter 4, each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. You get this picture that each of us have been called to be worshiping servants, but that that takes place in the community and in the interconnectedness and the relationships of one another. Paul draws the picture of community around Jesus. It's his gospel. It's his kingdom. It's his priesthood. It's his people. His word active among us. And so let the name of Jesus be evident and glorified in and through us. Whatever we do, Paul says, do it for the glory of Jesus. We're to be worshiping servants. We're also to be intercessors. Ephesians 6 says, with every prayer and request, pray at all times in the spirit and stay alert in this with all perseverance in intercession for all the saints. Intercession means to make a request or petition on behalf of another. It means bridging the gap between someone and Jesus in voicing prayers, in bringing them together through praying for them, over them. Sometimes I don't know what to pray. I don't have words. I need you. I need people to pray prayers that I can't pray. That is intercession. It's, this type of prayer is a way of practicing what we believe about God, that he is real, that he is powerful, that he wants to bring change and transformation and healing and restoration. And this type of prayer also demonstrates what we believe about church. This that prayer and the administering of God's grace in its various forms is carried out by everyone and not just a select few. We have a responsibility to carry God's mission and heart for the broken and lost and disconnected. And this type of prayer illustrates our desire to minister to the whole person, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual cool thing is that we have a high priest who is always interceding on our behalf. So let's mimic our intercessor. The third job description of the priest, one that I think we are to mimic, one we are to carry as well as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, is to be an advocate. And that advocacy takes Many, many forms. And this is not an exhaustive list, but as I was thinking and praying and processing through this, I was, here, here are some that came to mind. We, Leah and I watched a, a film last summer called Just Mercy about Brian Stevenson, who was a Harvard grad that moved to the South to advocate for the incarcerated, specifically innocent people who are on death row. And through the years, he and his organization have have worked tirelessly for not just inmates on death row, but for abuse against injustice in the 
in the incar incarceration, it, in, against uh, abuse and um, exposing mental illness and to, uh, to work for uh, teens that are tried as adults. I mean, extensive work. So as I was watching that and just so inspired by this man's life and legacy in, in work, uh, working really in the essence of grace, right? I was thinking, how do we minister to the incarcerated in our town, in our state? How do we partner with like, friends like Northview Church who um, have um, built a house in inner city Indianapolis as people come out of incarceration to help get them jobs and get them community and get them established because it's so difficult to have a job if you have a record. What's that look like for you? What's that look like for, for us as a church in terms of racial justice, I love our friends in Sun, at Sunshine Gospel Ministries in Chicago who work on the south side of Chicago uh, in, in establishing um, this foundation of um, stability in a place that feels really in, unstable. Job formation fused with the essence of discipleship. What's that look like on our campus, in our city, to work for racial justice, to work against racial inequality, to work for reconciliation? Justice for immigrants. Our friend Matt um, is a, he's a entrepreneur, you know, and, and so he is establishing jobs for immigrants in Indianapolis, how do, how do we minister to immigrants in our city? International students, not just befriending them, not just um, having a chance to uh, help them with their English, but actually advocating for them while they are so far away from home, especially over this Christmas break. Modern day slavery, uh, I was talking to the parents of one of our freshmen who are working with victims of sex trafficking in Southeast Asia. How do we become aware of and support victims of trafficking in our own city as well, in our state? In terms of advocating for the hungry, to join the work of Swipe Out Starvation, to join the work um, of the campus food bank out of the Baptist Student Foundation. To advocate for those that are diminished or bullied or left out or ostracized because of the color of their skin or their gender or their sexual orientation. To advocate for the unborn, but also to walk alongside those who are facing that decision to pray for an openness to fostering or adopting a child at some point in your life. But maybe it starts with being a big brother or a big sister or take part in a after-school tutoring program. Chloe Tynstra, one of our students, 
uh, is, is training to work with CASA, which is an advocacy group for children who've experienced neglect and abuse. And I just asked her to write a, a paragraph. What's your heart? What's the big why? why? What's your motivation for that? Last night she wrote, when I think about what advocacy means, I think that often it can mean that you are speaking for others. I think in contrast, it is that you are taking others' best interest and elevating them, perhaps more than they could do alone. I feel that as Christians, a part of the heart of ministry is to advocate, to work for widows and orphans and the needy, to not spend our lives working for the benefit of ourselves, but to look for the best interests of others and to work to bring those to fruition. I feel passionately about working with children in the judicial system as well as working with the people in my community that the Christian church overlooks and making sure that they are seen and loved. I think that the Lord has only begun to cultivate that passion in me and I thank him for it. My greatest desire as I think about my future is to let my life and knowledge and privilege and blessings be used, not for myself, but as a part of the body of Christ, advocating for those who are the least of these, putting others above myself and above all to bring glory to the Father. To be an advocate, to be an intercessor, to be a, a worshiping servant. All of that kind of falls under be a bridge builder, a reconciler. I want to end with this verse from 2 Corinthians 5. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Through Christ.